All right, we're beginning today uh, kind of a short study for the next five weeks on the life of Paul. And uh, today we're looking at the life of Paul before his conversion, as much as we can know and find out and kind of determine based on what Scripture says and what we know from the historical situation. So you start here with an introduction. I say Paul sort of jumps onto the page of the New Testament at Acts 7.57b through 58. This is the stoning of Stephen. They all rushed at him, that is Stephen, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I say here we have no biography of Paul and no account of his life before he appears as a fully mature man at the stoning of Stephen. Now, fortunately, there are some references to his previous life and his background in the book of Acts, later on in Acts 21, Acts chapter 22, and we'll begin to look at those. Let's start with the early life of Paul and talk about his birthplace, since we do know that. This birthplace was the city of Tarsus. He says in Acts 22.3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Cilicia is the province, the Roman province. Acts 21.39, Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a city of no ordinary, a citizen of no ordinary city. So, here is Tarsus. Um, or here's the Mediterranean world. And here's Tarsus on the map here. So you can see Italy over there. You can see Rome here, of course. And this is Greece here, now controlled by the Romans in Paul's day, Roman Greece. Uh, Paul goes to Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, here's Athens, here's Corinth. This is the province of Asia over here, Asia Minor. This is modern-day Turkey, but of course controlled by the Romans. And uh, Paul is in Ephesus and places like that. But he's from this place called Tarsus right here. Um, a little closer view here of Tarsus. Um, we'll talk a little more about the geography here, but you can see these mountains here that are very high, about 12,000 feet that keep you from coming any way but through this pass here. We'll see this pass. So um, this is a well-known and about the only way to get from Greece, from Asia Minor. If you want to go over here to uh, the Middle East, if you want to go down to Israel, if you want to go to Babylon, you know, anything like that, you pretty much had to come through Tarsus. Alexander the Great came through there when he was conquering the world. He had, he came, he stopped at Tarsus. So uh, there's just a natural pass there that we'll see. 
I mentioned here that Paul uh, was born and spent his earliest days in what's called the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews outside the borders of the Holy Land. So the Jews uh, began to be scattered. You know, they came into the land with Moses, Joshua, you remember, in about uh, 1400 B.C., and, uh, but then they had a captivity, the Assyrian captivity, the 8th century, 7th century had Babylonian captivity. So Jews get dispersed in various areas. And throughout that time, they get dispersed. These are just so ex- trying to show some of the population places where there were a lot of Jews in Egypt and all around here in what we think of as Turkey today. Paul visits Rome, of course, <coughs> Jews. Uh, this dispersion creates a lot of difficulties uh, because Judaism, the nation of Israel, is founded on the principle that people are in the land. They go to the central sanctuary. Everything about the Jewish religion in the Old Testament revolves around the central sanctuary, the tabernacle of the temple. Well, what do you do if you're in Rome? You know, that's a little bit of a problem. So this causes conflicts, uh, as we'll see, in Judaism. And we say Paul took pride in being from an important city. I say it was one of the larger cities in the Mediterranean world. Uh, land-wise, the city, the, the, net, the, the dimensions of the city itself was about 8 to 10 square miles, with a population in the thousands. How many thousands, we don't know. So Trenton's about 7.5 square miles. This is about 8 to 10. There actually is a larger metropolitan area that's much larger than that, but Tarsus itself. Now, not much has been excavated in Tarsus. I'll show you a couple pictures in a moment of a little bit that's been excavated because uh, and most everything in the ancient world, people just built on top of each other. Remember, they just built cities on top of cities, on top of cities, on top. So... Uh, it's impossible to dig up the whole city. You know, sometimes when they're digging up things and, and reconstructing things, they find remains and so forth uh, in the cities and the of, of ancient cities. Um, so here's Tarsus. As I said, Tarsus uh, was on this. Uh, uh, center of trade and commerce, I say here in B. It was a port city, so there was an actual port out here about 10 miles from Tarsus. Uh, kind of like Philippi was about 10 miles from Neapolis, the coast there. Many people think that people founded these cities a little ways in to, to prevent the pirates. There were Cilician pirates, the Romans were battling these pirates, and and so to protect yourself, you kind of built your cities a little ways off the coast so it would be harder uh, to be attacked and so forth. And Tarsus was like that. A well-protected harbor on the Sindus River, about 10 miles north of the coast. The northern side was protected by the Tarsus Mountains, passable through a narrow gorge called the Cilician Gates. Since Tarsus was near this passage, it controlled traffic <clears throat> leading through the gates to the interior plain of Asia Minor. It also controlled traffic leading through the gates to the east into Mesopotamia and Syria. Consequently, Tarsus grew to be a prosperous commercial city. It traded in minerals and timber from the Tarsus Mountain 25 
miles to the north. So Tarsus was here. Most of these mountains, 12,000 foot, it's hard to, hard to, an ancient, hard to get over those mountains, you know, especially with an army or something. You know, you almost got to come through that pass there. Uh, and so anybody coming from uh, Greece or Asia Minor had to come through this way. Here's the road that uh, remains of a Roman road about 12.5 miles, this is about 12.5 miles north of Tarsus, looking toward the Cilician Gates. So there was a road through there, well-traveled. Here is uh, the old road. There's a new road I'll show you in a second. So this, this captures this sort of old route through this Cilician Gate. So there's a natural pass through there that armies would come through, people would come through. Here's the modern road that you would travel today through the Cilician Gates. Here it is, uh, view from the southwest. So these are imposing mountains, and uh, it's only through this narrow passage that people were able to, to, to uh, travel. Uh, Tarsus also traveled in leather goods, uh, and they made a type of felt cloth from the hair of goats. There were these goats that lived on the mountains there. They had very dark hair, and they would take this hair from these goats and weave it into a fabric kind of thing. The, the advantage of this hair was it had a kind of a natural waterproofing quality. So these, these were made, in, so tents were made out of these. So uh, this hair was used a lot for tents because it would, would waterproof and so forth and so on. Um, Acts 18.3, when Paul comes to Corinth, he meets Aquila and Priscilla there, and it says he lodged with them because they were of the same trade. And it says in almost all translations that uh, they were tent makers. They were tent makers. That's, that word is difficult to know exactly how to translate. Uh, it only occurs there in the New Testament. It doesn't occur in the Old Testament. It's a difficult word. So many people think it is tent maker and that Paul was making tents you know, with them. This was a, uh, a needed thing, especially at Corinth, because when Paul was there, they were holding the Isthmian games, and people who came to the games had to stay in tents and so forth. That would be a a good product to produce then. But sometimes people think it means leather work because they also dealt in leather. So it's difficult to know exactly Paul's trade. He doesn't discuss it much. He doesn't say it. And the word is could be tent maker, leather, make, leather worker. It's a little difficult to pin it down exactly because it's so rare. Um, Tarsus, uh, I say here in C was important politically. It was the capital of the Roman province of Cilicia, Syria. From 25 B.C. to A.D. 70, Cilicia and Syria were viewed as one province with co-capitals, Tarsus and Antioch. So Antioch here in Syria, Tarsus over here. We've got a line here, but at various times the Romans sort of merged them into sort of one province. Sometimes they were considered separate provinces. Um, 
Uh, Tarsus had also been given the status of a free city by the Roman Senate. It was a very important city. Uh, famous people had been there. Cleopatra came there to meet Mark Anthony. Uh, you know, all kinds of famous people passed through there. Um, so this meant that this was a self-governing city, usually free from taxes and so forth like that. D, Tarsus was an important university city. In Paul's day, it surpassed even Athens and Alexandria. Many famous Stoic philosophers, Stoicism, remember, was one of the philosophies Paul encountered when he went to Athens there, Acts 17. And Stoicism was quite popular, and uh, it was a university town, and there were a lot of Stoic philosophers that came there uh, from Paul's particular hometown. So there have been some excavations that have been found. Uh, this is a road. They were digging up something and they uh, found these ancient remains. So there's a road. Uh, the Romans called it a cardo, the main road. And along the road you always had these columns. You had these pillars and columns and they were all there, you know. Uh, you see that in every sort of Roman town. Uh, Philippi, Corinth, you see the exact same thing. The uh, um, the road is about 25, 26 foot wide uh, and it's made of volcanic rock. So one of the things they used in building was this basalt or volcanic rock. <clears throat> if you ever go to the Holy Land. If you ever get a chance to go to the Holy Land, you'll go to Galilee and you'll go to the synagogue at Capernaum and they'll take you to the synagogue where Jesus, you know. The synagogue that's there now <clears throat> is not the exact synagogue. It's a later 2nd century uh, AD council. But you can see below, if you go outside, they'll show you the foundations of the original synagogue and you'll see this dark kind of rock there. You'll see this basalt kind of volcanic rock that they use. This is much harder and so forth. On the edges here is limestone. This is the gutter. And this is kind of a soft limestone that you can carve out and so forth that they use for the gutter of those streets. But as I say, it's about 23, 24 foot wide there. That's what they have found in Tarsus. I say number two, uh, we do not know exactly when Paul was born in Tarsus. The only information is found in Acts 7.58 where Paul is described as a young man, but that term can describe someone from 24 to 40. And Philemon 9 where he calls himself an old man, a term indicating some, someone at least 50. By the time of Stephen's stoning, Paul appears to have some leadership role in the Jewish community. In Acts 8.3, he, le he is leading the Jewish persecution against Christians. In Acts 9, he is sent on a mission from the high priest to persecute Christians in Damascus. Now, all this suggests that he may have been a member of the Sanhedrin. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible he was. Uh, 
If he was, later rules laid down later. We don't have rules from the first century, but we have rules written down by the rabbis uh, in the second century, third century after Christ. They say a person had to be 35 years old to be a member of the Sanhedrin. So if that were true, Paul was a member, he would you know, have to be in his 30s, late 30s here. If we plug those dates into the chronology of the book of Acts, it looks like Paul was probably born a few years after Christ himself was born. And uh, this, the tradition suggests that he was martyred in Rome around 66-67, AD 66, Nero's persecution in 66-67, which would mean Paul died in his mid to late 60s. So that's a general age, we think, that Paul may have lived to his 60s or 70s. Let's talk about Paul, the Roman citizen here. Um, Paul, the Roman citizen. Acts 16.37, this is when Paul is at Philippi, you know, and he's being uh, taken and arrested. And after he has spent the night, you know, in jail, they come to get him out, remember? And Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, threw us into prison. Then later on, when Paul goes to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, he's arrested again in the temple. And the, the, the troops come down from the fortress there, Antonio, around the temple. They get Paul, they bring him back up, and they say, let's find out what the story is, because we can't figure it out. The common way to find out is, you know, let's torture the guy. That's just what you do. You torture him and, you know, you, you know, you, he'll start talking. <laughs> Say anything. Yeah, well, I presume he'll talk and tell the truth. So they stretched him out to flog him. Standard practice. Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? No, it's not legal. So Acts 22, 28, a little later, the commander said, I had to pay a high price for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. So Paul clearly indicates that he was a Roman citizen. Now, we said Paul grew up in the diaspora here um, in Jewish areas where there were Jews and so forth. And we see Paul on his missionary journey encountering Jews wherever he sort of went. Uh, what we now call the Greco-Roman world, Greek in language and culture, but Roman in government. Although citizens were expected to know Latin, many did not, especially in the eastern part of the empire. Paul's knowledge of Latin was probably minimal, if any at all. Now, most of the uh, Roman world was divided up into provinces. Now, this is a map trying to show some of the Roman provinces. Um, there were two kinds of provinces, two main kinds. Uh, commonly called senatorial and imperial provinces. The peaceful and civilized provinces where no legions had to be stationed, about ten in number, were called senatorial provinces. <clears throat> so the Romans had conquered this area and they left their legions out in these provinces. So they had legions all along here, all along the border, all along here. They were fighting 
almost constantly keep trying to keep order and peace and so forth. Uh, they didn't really have any legions in Rome. It was actually a crime uh, to take your army into Rome. Now, that was violated by Sulla in the second century, but it's violated by Julius Caesar, ultimately, uh, when he became dictator of Rome. But basically, the army, except for the Praetorian Guard, the emperor's bodyguard, they were really stationed outside here. But in the senatorial provinces... Uh, there was not a uh, great need for Roman soldiers like the province of Achaia Achaia, where Corinth is at was a senatorial province Um, they were administered by the senate and ruled by proconsuls appointed by the senate so you had uh, in Acts 18 Paul is brought before the proconsul Gallio Gallio is the proconsul. It's like governor. But so Corinth was thought to be a more peaceful kind of province. People weren't always in rebellion and that kind of thing. The restless frontier provinces called imperial provinces were under the direct control of the emperor and governed by imperial legates, legates of the senatorial class. These legates were generally military men who had legions at their disposal. So uh, provinces like Syria here, which really kind of control Israel, Judea, and so forth, they they were under, they were that was a imperial province. You had usually some legate, some representative who was usually a former army man. When uh, when the United States took over Iraq, the first guy they installed was the next general. He was a disaster, but <laughs> kind of. But anyway, that's the first. That, that's the common thing. You put an ex-general when you conquer a land, you put him in charge. That's what the Romans did. They got somebody who had some military experience and so forth, because they were trying to transition over to a different kind of government. Um, smaller provinces like Judea were governed by members of the equestrian class. So Rome, like all societies, until we get to America. <laughs> Were had classes. Well, we still have authority classes now, but it's usually by wealth. But uh, so in the, in the Roman world, you had the senatorial class. You had to be born into that class, born. Then you had the equestrian class, which was the next class. You could get to that class if you made enough money. It was, it was determined by wealth, position, and there were lower classes underneath that. So the these smaller provinces were governed by members of the equestrian caste, like like Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a member of the equestrian class, later called procurators. So they changed the name, same really governor. They're the governor of Judea at the emperor, time of Emperor Claudius. In addition, there were client kingdoms, ethnic districts that were permitted to remain semi-independent under their own rulers, like Herod the Great. So Judea fluctuated back and forth. First, it was under Herod the Great. He got control in about 37 B.C. But then when he died, it was divided up first among his three three of his sons. He had a bunch of sons. But then one of the guys, Archelaus, he was just, he was worthless. So the Romans brought in a governor. And they, most, most of the time, Judea had governors like Pontius Pilate, Felix, Festus, people like that we see in the book of Acts and so forth.
I say here uh, three. Most people who lived outside of Italy in the provinces were not Roman citizens. But Paul was born a Roman citizen. So that's quite unusual. Anybody born here was a Roman citizen. Now gradually, when you get to the year 200, 250, Rome extends citizenship pretty much to everybody. But that's not now. Now it's still a very prized possession. Mostly people born here. But Paul. At this time, Rome position was a highly prized possession conferred only on those of high social or governmental standing, those who had done some exceptional service for Rome, or those able to bribe some imperial or provincial administrator to have their names included on the list of candidates who were to be admitted as citizens. In the second and third centuries, this use of bribery became really common. But it was still... It was still going on here. But that only accounted for a small minority of citizens. Remember, that's what that commander said when he arrested the Apostle Paul. Uh, this commander of this legion was not a Roman by birth, even though he was in a kind of a Roman army. He wasn't in a legion. He was in a, what's called an auxiliary. The commander ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks. You know, he said he directed he'd be flogged, interrogated, find out why the people were shouting at him like this. They stretched out, Paul says, remember, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? The centurion heard this, he went to the commander, reported it. What are you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and said, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. See, there's the bribe. So he got enough money, he got some official to put his name. They made citizens all the time, but you had to had to go through the official ranks. You had to be put on the rolls in Rome. You had to have be given a Roman name, a Roman family, and so forth, family name. So here's a soldier, a commander, and he said, I had to pay a lot of money. But Paul says, I was born a citizen. I say here, uh, new citizens received a certificate uh, and their names were recorded on one of the 35 tribal lists at Rome and also on their local municipal register. Succeeding uh, generations, those who came after and had citizenship, possessed a registration at birth called a professio. In fact, you can go online and look at the University of Michigan <clears throat> papyrus site. University of Michigan has a lot of papyri. And a lot of those papyri are birth certificates, interestingly enough, that they have been found in different places where someone has met, have a professio, a record of their status as citizens. And so that's what people did. They had this record and so forth. Six, papers validating citizenship were kept in family archives and not usually carried on one's person. The verbal claim to Roman citizenship was accepted at face value. Penalties for falsifying documents and making false claims of citizenship were exceedingly stiff, usually death. Here's a famous Roman, Cicero, Marcus Tullius Cicero. As a matter of fact, he was a famous politician, orator, writer. He was actually governor of Cilicia from 51 to 50 B.C. He says, quote, I am a Roman citizen. That appeal has often helped and even saved a man among the barbarians in the remotest lands. And that's what Paul did. Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. That has to be respected. 
You just can't say, oh, you're lying. You know, you could be in big trouble. Now, if Paul's lying, he's in big trouble, but that has to be taken uh, as a true statement until you can prove that it's not. Every Roman citizen had three names. Not at first, in the early part of the Republic, but as you develop, the time you get to about the 2nd century B.C., 1st century B.C., and Paul's time, every Roman had three names called a prinomen, they call it the trionomena, a prinomen, a nomen, and a cognomen. So, in the early Roman history, they had two names, a prinomen, sort of like a first name, and then a nomen, a family name. But as time went on, the prinomen fell out of use, even though you had to have one. So when this when this guy said, I bought my Roman citizenship, he was given a name. He took somebody's name, uh, some family name. So the name is the... The middle name there is the family name, whereas, you know, it's a sur- the surname, you might say, the surname. But then they had a cognomen, a cognomen, uh, a personal name. And this became more important as you get time, get to the first century, get to Paul's time. The cognomen becomes more common, more known. So we talked about Cicero, remember? So if if you ever studied Latin in school or you studied Roman history, you'll hear about Cicero. Cicero, we call him by his cognomen. Um, so, we've got some famous people here. Uh, the most famous orator, statesman, and philosopher we call Cicero was actually Marcus Tullius Cicero. The most famous Roman of all was Gaius Julius Caesar. So we think of Julius Caesar, we think Julius is his first name, but Julius is his family name. His cognomen, Caesar, would normally be the name he would be called generally, and not Julius, that's a family name that normally wouldn't be pronounced. So uh, no Roman in the New Testament, no Roman is given the full trionomena. Most likely, Pallas is Paul's cognomen because uh, Pallas is a common cognomen. It's not a family name. So the problem is we don't know uh, what his prinomen is, which is not that important, but really we'd love to know what his nomen is. If we knew what his nomen is, we would probably find out more about the Apostle Paul, but we don't know. All we know is his cognomen, Pallas. Paul. I say here, number 10, Paul also had another name, a signum or supernomen, Saul, a Hebrew name. The use of a Gentile name in addition to a Jewish name, particularly one more or less like sounding, Saulus, Paulus was by the New Testament times a well-established practice among Hellenistic Jews whether or not they were Roman citizens. So you have like Acts 12.25, John also called Mark. So John is the Hebrew name, his Gentile name, Mark. So his name is not technically John Mark. (laughs) 
It's John or Mark, one of the others. Not Saul, Paul. It's either Saul or Paul. It's not John, Mark, technically. Though, uh, Pansy has a brother-in-law, and his name is John Mark. <laughs> but uh, it's one or the other. Uh, Simon called Niger. Uh, Jesus, who is called Justice. And Saul, also called Paul. So it was common for Jews, uh, Jewish people, to take a Gentile name. Now, Earlier in Jewish history, this was considered a great compromise. <laughs> in the year 200, 150, what's called the Maccabean Revolt, I'll talk about in a moment, Jews looked upon this as, oh, this is a real compromise, you know, taking a Gentile name. You know, use your Jewish name. You know. But it became common practice. Jews commonly would pick up a, uh, a Gentile name that they used. It was considered acceptable and so forth. Uh, so for the case of the Apostle Paul he had that Roman name uh, Paul had that name Pallas from birth so Paul didn't change his name some people when they get to Acts 13 they try, they teach that when Paul was saved uh, he was saved on the road to Damascus he, that he God changed his name from Saul to Paul that's not true Paul, Paulus, he had that name from birth, and Saul, he had from birth. But he chose in Gentile areas to use that Gentile name. That was a better evangelistic tool to, to use that particular name in those particular areas. So he used that Roman name when ministering in Gentile areas. Let's talk about Paul the Jew. Uh, Jews in Paul's day could be divided into two broad categories. What we might call Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. Some Jews, especially those who lived in the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews, outside the borders of the Holy Land, adopted the Greco-Roman culture of the day and were not as strict about keeping the Jewish law and tradition and spoke mainly Greek. They were said to be Hellenized from the Greek verb meaning to make Greek and were called Hellenistic Jews. So sometimes the Greek of the New Testament is called Koine Greek. Sometimes it's called Hellenistic Greek. It's another name for that. Others, especially those who lived in the Holy Land, who strived to maintain a stricter lifestyle, were called Hebraic Jews and spoke mainly Hebrew Aramaic. Well, this caused a rift in the early church because these groups before the time of Christ had always had tensions because you've got people who live in the Holy Land who are very strict, observe the customs. you got people who live in Corinth who were Jews. They didn't seem to keep things as strict and so they were always sort of suspect, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Acts 6.1 In those days when the number of disciples was increasing the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews the Grecians or the Hellenistic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So there you have that conflict. 
and they try to solve it, you know, by appointing those seven men. We think of the seven first deacons, appointing them to kind of handle this controversy that's brewed up in the church. I mean, Paul was certainly influenced by his Hellenistic background to some degree. He spoke Greek. He could quote Greek poets. He does a couple of times in Acts 17 in Athens. He mentions to Titus. He quotes one. Paul was familiar with uh, the Greco-Roman games. He certainly was very familiar. He used illustrations of runners and boxing, things like that, you know, and so on. Uh, But his major influence clearly seems to be his training in Judaism as a Jew. Even though he was born in Tarsus, uh, his major influence seems to be uh, as a Jew. I say number two, Judaism in Paul's day, after the return of Israel from captivity, had become a religion that strongly emphasized the law. New offices and institutions developed. So, the captivities, the Babylonian, the Assyrian, had disrupted Judaism. Because you can't offer sacrifices if you're in Babylonia, if you're in Assyria. What are you going to do? You can't go to the temple. There's no priests. Priests, the Levites, were supposed to be the teachers of Israel. You know, what do you do in that kind of situation? Well, they developed new institutions. Uh, new offices. Rabbi, for one, literally my great one, had arisen as a lay order to be teachers of the law, displacing the traditional role of the priest. So there were no rabbis in Israel before the captivity. The Mosaic law doesn't say anything about that office of rabbi, but you know, you hear in the New Testament, Jesus is called a rabbi. And we have rabbi, Jewish rabbis today, obviously. Scribes, sometimes called lawyers in King James, had arisen to be copiers and professional scholars of the Mosaic Law. Like rabbis, they did not exist before the captivity. Now, in Paul's day, these rabbis, these scribes, had common interests. Often they were the same person. Paul studied under Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a rabbi. He was also described as a scribe. There were synagogues. Synagogues had developed during and after the captivity as places primarily devoted to the study of the law. So you didn't offer sacrifices. You came and studied the law. So even though in Jesus' day the temple was still there in Jerusalem, they still had synagogues in Capernaum, places like that that people went to hear the law, talk, discuss the law. So synagogue life revolved around the law that was taught there, especially by the rabbis. And that's true, somewhat true today. Judaism revolves around there. Well, Paul the Pharisee. He says in Philippians 3, 5, and 6, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness faultless. It's also mentioned in Acts that he's a Pharisee, but this is Paul's personal statement that he is. One, the Judaism of Paul's day was divided into different sects. I'm only going to discuss two, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's others, like the Essenes, you've heard the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the people who copied those, those are usually called the Essenes. There's other sects. But the two main ones 
are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The name of the Pharisees literally means separated ones. Their roots go back to the movement of the Hasidim, or the pious ones, who with the Maccabees opposed attempts to introduce Hellenism in a Jewish culture in the 2nd century B.C. So just a little history here for a moment. Before the time of the New Testament, the ancient world was conquered by Alexander the Great. He left Greece, he came over into Turkey, he came through the Cilician Gates into Tarsus, he went on over even into India maybe, you know, and into Egypt, and so he conquered sort of the known world. And after his death, his empire was divided roughly among four of his generals. Uh, one named Ptolemy here ruled in Egypt, and uh, the Seleucids ruled here. That's this area. So Judah, right here, uh, was first uh, ruled after Alexander the Great in the year, say, 300. They were ruled by Egypt, by the Ptolemies. But the Seleucids, they wanted, they fought back and forth with them, and they eventually gained control. In the 2nd century B.C., the Seleucids gained control. Syria, sometimes it's called. Syria gained control of Judah. And what they wanted to do was Hellenize these people. They wanted to turn them into Greeks. They wanted to do away with Jewish culture and so forth. And they tried to do that. They, uh, you know, tried to prevent uh, uh, Jewish festivals. They burned copies of the law. They uh, desecrated the temple. Uh, one ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, burned a pig on the altar in Jerusalem and so forth. So in the second century, the Jews revolted. They revolted. It was led by a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus. It means Judas the Hammer. So these, this family is sometimes called the, the, the Maccabees. If you go up to Southfield, if you drive up Southfield, up 10 up there, you'll see buildings that have the name Maccabee and all that, things like that. Jewish, you'll see that name around Detroit quite a bit because of the Jewish population. So uh, the Jews revolted. And uh, they ultimately... Uh, uh, established their own kingdom again. They started very small in Jerusalem. They built out and built out. They, revolt, they revolted against these Seleucids here. And th- they kept this going from about 167 until about the year 63. They were aided actually by Rome. Rome was getting ready to conquer the world, <laughs> the whole world. And so... Uh, they sort of made a pact with Judah because they didn't want... They, they, it was a power play. They didn't want the, the uh, Seleucids to have too much power, so they were made a pact with Israel. They called uh, Israel's the friend of Rome and so forth. And so the Seleucids established an empire there. And during that time, we know from various Jewish writers that groups emerged. One group was these Pharisees. Another group was the Sadducees during this period. They had different views about integrating culture, the law, and so forth. There were debates about this. So these Pharisees, uh, they they didn't like the uh, introduction of Hellenistic culture, Greek culture. Uh, there were... Uh, 
you know, athletic fields in Jerusalem where Jewish lads exercised in the nude, like Rome, like Greeks did <laughs> in the Olympic Games. That didn't go over too well with most Jewish populations, as you can imagine. So you've got these turncoats, sort of. You know, you're dividing the population, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, the Pharisees, mostly laymen, but their leaders were primarily scribes who interpreted the scripture according to the oral law or tradition of the elders, or the halakha, which they held was as ancient as the written law. So these Pharisees said that when Moses gave the law on Mount Sinai, he gave an oral interpretation that was passed down orally from generation to generation. So Jews today believe in not only the Bible, the Old Testament, but that oral law that was passed down. Jesus refers to it. You know, the Bible says, but you say. You know, religious leaders say. They're talk, uh, Jesus is talking about that oral law, that halakha. Now, that was written down eventually around the year 200. It became what's called the Mishnah part of the Talmud. So if you're a Jewish rabbi today, you study the Bible, but you also study the written oral law, the Talmud. And it just expands everything. It has legalistic interpretations for every little detail in life. There's nothing in life, there's no question in life that the, that the Talmud doesn't answer, that they can't give you an answer to about whatever. So uh, these Pharisees were fundamentally legalistic, very legalistic, who tried to reduce life to a system of rules that covered every conceivable circumstances. Their leaders were scribes, rabbis, who laid the foundation for rabbinic Judaism of the Middle Ages and today. Another group besides the Pharisees were the Sadducees. They were named because they claimed to be descended from Zadok, the high priest at the time of King David and King Solomon. The Sadducees were mainly priests concerned with the temple worship practices. They mainly consisted of the wealthy aristocratic families who controlled the office of the high priest. They were more open to certain Hellenistic influences and were politically oriented. They rejected belief in angels and the resurrection and, sa and said that they believed the soul perishes with the body. Josephus said they believed the soul perishes with the body. So the center of their strength was the temple. As a result, when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the Sadducees ceased to exist. So we don't have any ancient documents that we can point to and say, this is a Sadducean document. There's nothing like that. All we know about the Sadducees is from others who wrote about them. The Pharisees continued on. They established a school on the coast at Jamnia, and they got permission from the Romans to exist, and they continued on. And that developed into rabbinic, the Middle Age Judaism, rabbinic Judaism, and the Judaism of today is all descended, as far as we know, from the Pharisaic interpretation, though Judaism today has splintered off into three groups, a conservative, a middle of the road, and a kind of a liberal, reformed, conservative, orthodox. There's actually ultra- ultra-Orthodox in Israel. You see those people with the things hanging down from their sideburn. Those are ultra-Orthodox. They live in Israel, but they don't really believe in Israel. 
They don't really, they're not Zionists. Zionists are people who want to restore, want to restore Israel. Those people don't believe in Zionism because they believe the Messiah will bring Israel back to the land. Now, they don't believe this political deal that happened in 1948 is of God. So even though they live there, they don't believe in Zionism. They're a large group and they're creating a lot of problems because Israel has a very low birth rate except these people. And the Orthodox have a really high birth rate. They, they expect in a few years they're going to be 25% of the population. And as they vote, that's going to change the face of Israel quite a bit, maybe. We'll see what happens because they have different views than you might suspect about things. Well, Saul was born in Tarsus, according to Acts. He was, he was brought up in Jerusalem. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. This verse indicates that Paul came to Jerusalem at an early age to begin his training under Gamaliel. When Paul came to Jerusalem, is not certain, but it was probably about the time of his bar mitzvah. Now, that's a guess. I don't know. When a Jewish lad became 13, he became an adult. In the ancient world, there was no teenagers. <laughs> when you became a child, you became a man. Same way in Judaism. You were a child, 13, you're a man. You're subject to all the laws of Israel. That's what bar mitzvah, a son of the commandments, means. Now you are subject to the commandments. When a 13-year-old boy took upon himself the full obligation of the law, and the more promising boys were directed into rabbinic schools. Now, Paul came to Jerusalem. The only thing we know about his family is in Acts 23, 16, when he's arrested, he mentions that his nephew comes and sees him, remember? So he has a sister. His, his wife is a sister's boy. So he has family. Maybe he stayed with them. We don't know. Gamaliel B., under whom Paul studied, was the most famous rabbi of his day, a Pharisee a leader of the school of Hillel. In Paul's day, there were two main schools for rabbis in Jerusalem. One started by Rabbi Shammai and the other by Rabbi Hillel, both in the first century B.C. The school of Shammai was known for its very strict, orthodox, and dogmatic requirements. It was the more strict, emphasizing maximum requirements. The school of Hillel was more liberal in its interpretation of the law, concerned about the spirit, not just the letter of the law. Now, it doesn't mean they were liberals, but they were not as strict, quite as strict as... These are sometimes technical de details. Three, Paul was apparently one of the leading figures in the Jewish world of his day. He says in Galatians 1, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So we see Paul coming onto the stage at the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He was a trained rabbi. He was devoted to the Pharisaic interpretation of Judaism. The fact that those stoning Stephen laid their robes at Paul's feet suggests that Paul had a responsible role. He says... And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding clothes to those who were killing him. 
So the killing of Stephen was a Sanhedrin matter. Paul may have been an official observer approved by the Sanhedrin and very possibly a member of the Sanhedrin. After this, Paul was the leader in the persecution of Christians. Remember Acts 8? And Paul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church of Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So none of this could have happened without the active involvement of the Sanhedrin. Paul was acting for them. C. Paul planned to continue his inquisition by hunting down Christians in Damascus of Syria. We don't know exactly why he chose this, except that maybe he had heard there was a large population of Christians there, Jews converting, and so we got to go there and stamp this out. Um, Acts 9, 1 and 2. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, Christian Christians were called, the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So the high priest was the presiding officer of the Sanhedrin. And there's no doubt then that Paul is acting in an official capacity here. He's the agent of the Sanhedrin. He's going to exterminate this heresy called Christianity. D. Paul may have been a member of the Sanhedrin himself, for he says when Christians were being put to death, he cast his vote against them. The particular language used, cast down a pebble against them, was the terminology used for official votes in Judaism. Casting a vote for capital punishment required membership in the Sanhedrin. Now, one of the problems with thinking that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin was that these rules that were laid down, written down, a little later that we know about, require that a person be married to be a member of the Sanhedrin. So some question, if Paul could have been a member of the Sanhedrin at this time, because it's clear from information in his in the book of Acts and his letters uh, that at the time of his missionary journeys, he is not married. He was single at that time. But this does not conclude, uh, 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 exclude the possibility that he was maybe a widower. <clears throat> In fact, there's a verse that suggests he was a widower. This verse. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now he's talking about the gift of self-control here. <laughs> Now, to the unmarried and widows. Now, he's going to talk about people who are married next. And he gets further down the text here. But he says, to the unmarried and widows, I say. This word unmarried, agamas, was really the standard word in Greek for a male who had lost his wife, for a widower. What's that, what's that word again? Agamas. Gamas means married. Agamas. A-G-A-M-O-S. 
So this is the word, the standard word, common word that was used in literature for someone who was previously married. Uh, and I think that's the case here. It's not. We can't say this absolutely, but I think there's pretty strong evidence. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say this. It's best for them to stay unmarried as I do. I'm a widower. Stay, it's better they stay like that. So this is a hint, I think a strong hint, that Paul may have been married at one time. Therefore, he could have been a member of the Sanhedrin. And then uh, his wife died, something happened. And he was a widow. He was not married on his missionary terms. Now, I can't prove all that, but there's certainly an indication that might be the case. All right. Let's stop here. We'll pick up next time with the conversion of Paul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of the Apostle Paul. What an inspiration he is to us. And we gain uh, courage. We gain strength. We're convicted by his testimony, his life, his suffering, his dedication. We pray we might gain some of that as we look at this great man. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.